What is on your mind today? Welcome to episode 334 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Heather, George, Tanya, Chris, and Lena. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Heather, George, Tanya, Chris, and Lena, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. I hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be the host for your many voices today. A listener writes, My daughter will be coming home from rehab this weekend. I am not ready. She claims I am her trigger. All I have ever done is pay all her bills, take care of your child. She was living in my old house, which I was keeping up. I can't do it anymore. I lost my husband last March, and it has been very difficult for me. She just didn't get it. Now, I am her trigger. I know we can't live together, but we have got to do it right now. I can't let my granddaughter go back to living like she was. I need someone to talk to. This is why we have meetings. This is why we have sponsors. This is why we have phone lists, because we all at times need someone to talk to when we're lost in the confusion, lost in the not knowing what to do. I hope you can find someone near you that you can talk to. A listener writes about electronic connection that they have found. Since quarantine, I have joined an Al-Anon group and an ACOA group on Discord. The Al-Anon group is a registered group with the WSO, and it is suggested to donate to the WSO when you attend meetings. Both groups allow chat 24-7 and have different rooms and chats for all aspects of the meeting, fellowship, and group. The ACOA group is a closed group and not yet registered, but it runs the same way. I was thinking this could be an amazing thing to do for other groups. I want to thank you for inspiring me. I reached out to another Al-Anon friend and we created a step study group with about seven people and we created our own Discord room to do our step study work. We chat and support each other whenever needed. We share and post things that speak to us. Then on Sundays, we have a voice step meeting to work our steps. Since I helped to create the group, I am chairing the first few meetings to help get the group going. I've wanted to do my step work in a group since I heard you speaking about it on the podcast. We loosely based our rules and guidelines from what I heard from you and what a group conscience decides. I'm so excited to start on this journey. Discord, as I understand it, and I haven't really used it, is a way to do electronic chat, a way to do chat over the internet. It was originally created for video gamers who wanted to communicate with each other. Discord also supports video meetings as well. So I guess it it shows up as a sort of an alternative to Zoom, or maybe an alternative to something like Slack, which I have used in other contexts. I use it at work, for example, where, where you have text chat with different channels so that you can have different topics of discussion, and then also possibility of doing video connection. So there's another possibility, I guess, for uh, creating an electronic community. If you have experience with that, maybe you could write or call and share your experience and how it's worked 
in your recovery. Thanks for writing. Eric sent us a link to a meditation on the Insight Timer app about patience. I will put that link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 334. Maggie sent us a share about patience and tolerance that I forgot to include in last week's episode, so here it is. Hi, Spencer. This is Maggie S. in Chicago. I really find that the topic of patience and tolerance is a really rich one for me. Patience is something that I struggle with, both in small things and in larger life things. I find that what's really going on with me when I'm feeling impatient is that it's a clue to me that I'm not feeling very safe or secure. And in little things, that could be like waiting for the mail to be delivered. If I have confidence that the mail will be delivered, I can be very patient. But if I hear that there's been problems with the mail and some people have lost things in the mail, I become very impatient and I really can't wait for the mail to arrive. And also that comes up in kind of what the yearnings of my heart are. You know, someday I hope to have a really loving partnership. And if I feel safe and secure that someday that will happen, I feel very patient. But if I don't think that that could maybe happen or I doubt that that may be happening. I feel very impatient and anxious and it's really difficult for me to wait. So when I'm feeling impatient, I really try to shore up my reserves of safety and security. And usually that comes through in taking some action or having some conversation I very rarely get to a place of safety or security by just sitting there and trying to think myself into a place of security. I usually need to have a plan B or double check something. And that really helps me tap into my reserves of patience, which are there if I am feeling secure. Tolerance is a little bit different for me. My experience with my qualifiers was that I coped by tolerating things that ultimately harmed me. So I'd say I'm an incredibly tolerant person, a tolerant to a fault, really. So when I'm trying to practice tolerance, it's helpful for me to keep in mind that it has a lot to do with boundaries. And if I'm maintaining healthy boundaries, I am able to tolerate other people and their decisions much more easily. If I'm detached enough, I'm able to tolerate better. Sometimes I need to say to myself, I understand why this person is doing this. I accept that this person is doing this, but I cannot allow this person to do this to me at this event. I, I need to protect myself. That's really helpful in kind of shoring up those boundaries where once I have the boundary and I, I am safe and secure, I can kind of have more empathy and grace in, in my interactions with my qualifiers, most especially. Also, I just wanted to share because 
something that was new when I just moved to Chicago that I hadn't heard when I was in program in Philadelphia and maybe some other people listening hadn't heard the one of the extended versions of the serenity prayer, which we use in Chicago that I find really beautiful and talks about patience and tolerance. It goes, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Grant me patience with the changes that take time, appreciation for all that I have, tolerance for those with different struggles, and the strength to get up and try again one day at a time. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Maggie. Dan writes, I hope this email finds you well during these tough times. A recovery friend of mine who is a great advocate of your podcast suggested I contact you to see if you could use my attached Step 7 share on your podcast. I live in Spain and I've been working the program during strict lockdown. I do the steps with my sponsor and make the most of the dire situation to do some recovery globe trotting. To give you an idea, I've attended these meetings. Al-Anon in Florida, North Carolina, Houston, New Orleans, New York City, Israel, Chechia, Belgium, Fuengirola, Madrid, Spain. Maybe Fuengirola is also in Spain. Hmm. Netherlands, France, Australia, Adelaide, Darwin, and Melbourne. Singapore, Colombia, Denmark, Hong Kong, Luxembourg, Canada, Mexico, Bali, Switzerland. That's, wow. Families Anonymous in Scotland. Naranon in South Africa, UK, and House Party, which is apparently a global Naranon meeting. Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families in Germany. Koanon in Sweden and Rainbow Roundup in the UK. Yours in Fellowship, Dan in Madrid. Wow, Dan. And here's Dan's share. Hi, my name is Dan, and um, I'm a grateful member of Naranon. I just want to say thank you so much to the organizers for putting on this wonderful event today. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. I've been going to to the program long enough to know that I want to keep coming back. And as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from the UK, but I live in Madrid in Spain, the capital. Just to give you a bit of background about me before I share on step seven, I'm 33 years old. I've lived in Spain for about 10 years. My parents got divorced when I was very little. My father has been clean and sober since before I was born. He attends NA and the alcohol equivalent. I'm sure you all know the name. And and that is a gift of God. My mother did date a man who had serious drug problems. It was uh, pretty abusive to me in my younger years. So, yeah. I can just give you that bit of background about how I personally have been affected by the family illness of drug abuse, drug use, addiction. Yeah, I came into the to the rooms, to the program of recovery, because in a nutshell, I was miserable. I hit more than one rock bottom. I was obsessing about other people, making them my my higher power, putting them on a pedestal. I was completely lost regarding my sexuality. And I won't go into all the details, but I first had a breakdown in front of my mother where I cried for the first time in years. And, you know, I told her that that I was worried about 
my sexuality and she said why don't you go to see a psychologist and then from there things evolved here in madrid they don't have english speaking naran on meetings but my father suggested i attend another 12-step program i haven't looked back since for me this is my truth but this pandemic has been a blessing because i've been able to attend meetings that physically would be impossible i've had the the wonderful fortune to to meet members in south africa my home country as well and this has really helped to broaden my horizons to see what other people are going through with regarding to the pandemic not just here in spain now today i have a wonderful tool belt we could say which include going to meetings reading naran on literature using the slogans making program phone recovery calls and of course working the steps which is why i'm here today because for me i always consider the the steps to be homework so it's great that i go to meetings but the real nitty gritty of my recovery is for me it's fundamental to work the steps so yeah i will uh, remind you for me and for us all of step 7 humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings i'd also like to add that working the steps with a sponsor for me i couldn't imagine doing it any other way albeit a, a trusted program friend i had one sponsor and and then i moved on to a new sponsor and it took courage and humility for me to ask my sponsor who i'm very grateful to have today here in madrid to ask him to sponsor me because that in itself was an act of humility of me saying I need help. I don't have all the answers, but I can reach out and get his help. As I mentioned, there aren't English speaking Naranon meetings here and henceforth there aren't English speaking Naranon literature sold here. So for this step, I did use past to recovery, a workbook from Alanon to work this step. And obviously the help of my sponsor. The first question I had to ask myself was what does humility mean to me? In my eyes, in my opinion, again to reiterate, it means that I don't have all the answers, but I know someone that does, and that can come in the form of my higher power or of a trusted program friend or my sponsor. It also means being open to learning, being willing to surrender and to be teachable. I I do my best to be humble, shall we say, by admitting my defects of character such as being self-righteous taking things too personally owning up to my mistakes when i do something wrong knowing my limitations whether it's physical or in any kind of scenario and also importantly for me not bragging about my accomplishments also if i choose to do a good deed not wanting to tell anyone about it because I'm doing it for myself not so I can say oh I've done this you you need to hear how great Dan is also humor for me humor is is one of many wonderful tools well maybe not tools but something that has been really well refined for me since I've worked the program because when I came in I was I was pretty sarcastic and I could easily mock people to try and get laughs but mocking someone else It, it it's it's just not nice it's not nice and fortunately later down the line in step 9 I I've been able to make amends to people that that I've harmed with such such a meanness shall we say 
back to humility, turning tough situations over to God keeps me humble and reminds me that I need to ask for help. So I'll just share some some personal obstructions to humility in my case. An illusion of control, a lack of faith, closed-mindedness, dishonesty towards myself, and also self-pity and, and victimization. There are also shortcomings that I have asked God to remove, including arrogance, self-pity, obsession, jealousy, an illusion of control, a lack of self-worth, frustration, procrastination, rigidity, and resentfulness. I believe that my higher power can remove my shortcomings, but not eliminate them. I'm not going to become a saint by working the steps, but what I can do is do my bit by putting what I, I perceive as spiritual space between my defects, my flaws, and myself. It is vital that I that I feel ready to have God remove my defects as I did in step six, because if I'm not ready to have them removed, then it's not the right moment to be to be working step seven. Very often these flaws can take the form of survival mechanisms that that no longer maybe they've just gone out of whack. They might intrinsically not necessarily be negative, but when I take them to the extremes, that's when there can be issues. For example, rigidity can be appropriate in certain circumstances when it comes to maybe not breaking the law. But when it comes to making arrangements with friends, then my rigidness is not a characteristic that I want to use. I could maybe say the same for judgment. So maybe it could be acceptable to judge a certain act as wrong or immoral. But when I'm judging other people, be it verbally or in my mind, then that is a defect of character for me. I can do my bit by asking God, by praying to God and asking him to take the shortcomings from me and to see my defects from God's perspective. Working this step, I have needed to look at shortcomings that have caused me the most trouble at that moment in time, what benefits I gained and what problems it caused. One key example for me was obsession, just overthinking things and then letting things fester or dwelling on things. I mean, I could say that the supposed benefits were feeling an illusion of control and a false sense of security. And also maybe thinking that I didn't need to change if I just lived in this obsessive cycle. I could just go on like that, even though, nevertheless, I suffered and felt miserable. You know, I didn't have any peace and I was not in the present moment. During my recovery, at all points, at all stages, it is important to treat myself with compassion. And also to ask God, not only when I'm looking at others, but to remember that I'm doing my best one day at a time. I can do this in the knowledge that God has and still and always does love me. And to stay in touch with God, part of my daily routine every morning after I brush my teeth is to to meditate and pray. That's a form of self-care for me. Also, resting uh, was another way that I could look at forms of self-care. 
when it comes to working this step. Also, I'm using quite a lot of slogans, as you can see, Bill. Another one that is important for me to, to be kind to myself is remembering it's, it's progress, not perfection. In order to cooperate with the higher power of my understanding to remove my shortcomings, I can listen, avoid forcing things, and as my former sponsor so wisely reminded me, try to go with the flow, keeping a lookout for those green traffic lights and also for the red lights. That's, that's crucial. So by praying and meditating, I can both ask and listen for God's will for me. So that's how I like to envisage the, 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 these two acts of, of step 11 as well. I do want to be teachable, as I said earlier, which does clearly take humility because, again, it's saying that I don't, I don't have all the answers and that I can learn from others and from my higher power. When I'm teachable, when I'm open to, to using or to acting in new ways, then it means I can learn new behaviors, ideas, and broaden my horizons and get new perspectives as well. Very often when I talk to my sponsor, it's just getting his perspective on things that I just wouldn't have even perceived. And that is so, so, so helpful. Clearly, I have to do my bit. And I love the analogy that that was said about step six about sort of reaching to the skies as high as I can and then God reaching down for me so that would be for me like about making positive changes on a daily basis doing my part for example being more courteous that's an area where I'm I'm still working on just in daily interactions maybe even at the supermarket this morning, the checkout person said, oh, no, you need to keep this distance. I, I didn't really understand what he said, but uh, I could sort of feel myself edging towards self-righteousness. So, so as I said, being more courteous, less critical and judgmental of myself and of others. Also, I can look to be more compassionate, open-minded and understanding in my interactions. And again, as I said earlier, to, to repeat, just uh, remember people are doing their best. Everyone's doing their best at that moment in time with, with the tools they have, regardless of if they have recovery or not. Working this step, step seven, I looked at positive traits that I wanted to develop to substitute for a trait that I wanted to remove. For example, fear for faith, arrogance for humility, judgmentalness for perception, procrastination for promptness, stubbornness for open-mindedness, self-pity for thoughtfulness, and rigidity for flexibility. I find that I can look to practice these traits, these characteristics on a, on a more regular basis. So like when I'm making arrangements with friends, like today when I made arrangements with a friend and it's like, well, well what do you fancy doing? And not just imposing the, what I want to do. But I can try to stay connected with my higher power by breathing deeply, which helps me be more calm, relaxed and in the moment. And also when I'm inclined to react as opposed to respond, I can remember that God is in the pause. That's a great expression that I've picked up in the rooms here in Madrid. I can't take credit for it, but I, I love that, that term. God is in the pause. So when I'm tempted to be to judge and criticize 
and be self-righteous. I can hold my tongue and and that gives me peace, especially in group scenarios where someone says something that I don't agree with. I can say, oh, you might be right. Or I can just keep my mouth shut. I, I know this step works because I can give you some examples of how my fears and obsessions have been removed or seriously downsized. One about my sexuality, being rejected. To give you a practical example of bed bugs coming back into my flat after having the eliminators come around and my sponsor reassuring me that they won't come back. And he was right. At the time, I was, it was a nightmare. I'm not going to lie. Also, concerns about working steps four and five, just, just getting through them more than anything. I think in the States, they use this expression more than we do in the UK, which is, I've got you. It's an expression I like, but I don't get to use it much. But I envisage my higher power saying that to me. And it's, it's very comforting. It's really reassuring for me to know that the certain negative behaviors that I've mentioned earlier or traits are lessening or being removed. I've talked about sarcasm and obsession. I think also about being condescending, projecting about the future as well. That's something that I do much less of, able to stay in the moment, less procrastinating. Procrastination is another defect of mine. Not being so argumentative. As part of step nine, I needed to make amends to my mother, and that, that, that was very healing. Not being so resentful as well. I was praying this morning to have a resentment towards a particular family member about something they're doing or not doing removed because I need God to do God's part for me. Not being so self-conscious as well, like in my interactions, overthinking what I should or shouldn't have said and not being so self-pitying as well, feeling sorry for myself. I could could do, could do a lot of that before I had the recovery. Yeah, and um, avoiding the sense of victimhood, it, it really helps me to see challenges as opportunities. And remember that God only puts hurdles or, or yeah, challenges in my path in the knowledge that I have the tools to face them and that God doesn't put anything in my path that I can't deal with, shall we say. I, I did want to leave a message for for the newcomers as well, anyone that hasn't been in the program for long. This isn't an exaggeration for me that recovery 12-step program is the, is the greatest gift that I've ever been given in my life. And the more I work it, the more I get out of it. I've been helped by so many people and I, I hope that my share, it's might have been a bit disjointed and I apologize if that's the case but I hope that you've been able to to get something out of it take what you like and leave the rest but you know my life pre-program and present the present day is chalk and cheese as I mentioned earlier and I'll, I'll reiterate that there are so many tools that we have you know I've got my reading the the sharing experience strength and hope daily reader that I read every night before I go to bed the steps, meditating, praying, talking to my sponsor, attending meetings and being of service. As, as um, Stephanie and the organizers, it, this is wonderful service that you're doing here. And thank you for, for letting me share and, and be with you all today. Natalie writes, I was just listening to the last episode on steps one, two and three, and I really appreciated the reminder. A lot of the stuff going on in the world right now and in our country has been very troubling to me. 
And it's good to remember that I have a higher power, and so does everybody else. I wanted to compliment you on taking care of yourself by not pushing episodes out when you need time for yourself. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. I can always listen to an older episode. Keep up the good work and keep taking care of yourself. Sincerely, Natalie. Well, thank you, Natalie. Thank you for that support. Pat called with a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast um, calling about your request for shares about death of a loved one who's affected by alcohol or in the throes of it. My heart goes out to the woman whose husband died and she has not been in the program long because I do remember so well what it was like when I was early in recovery. I remember being so angry and really wishing he would just die because that would make everything better. That's a really painful thing to say, but it's really honest. And it's not necessarily her story, but I think people could do to know that that's a normal reaction. It's part of what other people feel sometimes when they're in these dreadful situations where they're so close and so intimate with someone who's actively drinking. If anyone's feeling those things. It's something to work through with the sponsor. It weighed on my heart for years, and it was in working the fourth and fifth step with my sponsor that I finally forgave myself for having those feelings. You know, I didn't actively go out and do anything to make it happen, so there you go. But there was so much anger and strife in the house. I had not been in recovery. It was, you know, I certainly had my role in how challenging our relationship was and the screaming fights that happened and what my kids saw. So what I would say to her is know that whatever emotions you have, whatever thoughts you've had, we, there are those of us out there that had them too. My loved one ended up passing about a year ago from alcohol-related disease cancers of the throat and what I'm so grateful for is that even though we had split as a couple we had come to a place where I was able to be loving with him and be a positive relationship for him as he was going through his final months and days and I was actually with him when he passed it's it's really A wonderful thing to have worked in the program and been able to get to the place where I could be loving with him and non-judgmental. The one other thing I'd say is that even though we split, I kept going to Al-Anon because having been in that relationship, there is so much baggage there. There's so much dis-ease on my part, so much need for recovery on my part that I'm still very active in it with my sponsor. I still participate. I still do my readings. It is my spiritual program for the rest of my life. And there is something to be gained and so much serenity, even as, and especially in these extremely difficult times that we're in right now, that I would say, even though the person who's using in, in your life has passed, you still need Al-Anon. You still need to come and and work your program for yourself. My heart goes out to them, 
it's it's a really tough thing to go through, but if you stick with Al-Anon, the the beauty of it is you will have just an incredible amount of support from people who really know and have been there. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pat. An anonymous listener wrote, thanks for your commitment and sacrifice to all of us. Truly is a lifeline of encouragement, strength, and hope. Could you please suggest any episodes about watching someone decline, seeing the progression of the disease and not knowing what to do, letting the process happen? They need to go through, and whatever the timing for the disease needs to happen. Thanks. I know there are some. They're not coming right to mind at the moment. I've talked about it in my story a couple of times, I'm sure. And I know that other guests have talked about it as well. Alina called with shares about loss and about why I stay. Hi, my name is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 76, which was about loss. It's kind of an interesting topic because I think that it's always hard for me dealing with emotions and losing people. And I guess loss could mean a lot of things to me. Losing someone physically as far as you know, with a death or anything like that. I think the hardest loss for me would have probably been when my stepfather passed away. I still remember it. You know, I go back and and try to redo the past and think about what I could have done differently. I know that's not always a healthy thing to do, but he was probably the closest thing to a father that I, I had growing up. My biological dad was an alcoholic and my mother and him divorced when I was, I think I was eight. I periodically saw him, even though we lived in the same state, I would think we lived probably like 30, 40 minutes away, but I never really got to see him much. And, you know, he moved on to another family and had kids. I always felt when I did occasionally try to reach out to him when I was little, it was always, I don't know what, he would always kind of comment like that I wanted something like I was calling him because I wanted something. I wanted money or my mom put me up to it. And that was never the case. So I think after a time, I just gave up on that. And then when my mother married my stepfather and my sister and I became really close with him, we felt like, I don't know, I think, think it was the happiest we had been in a long time. And at that time I was 15. And so it had been some years between not having a father figure as far as in the house. We had my grandfather who we loved him and he did things with us and thank God for him. You know, otherwise I don't know. And my grandmother as well, she stepped in because my mom was a single mom and she was pretty busy. Anyway, as far as loss, he ended up being diagnosed with cancer and he passed away I think I was 22 at the time. And so from 15 to 22, I had that father figure and he made us laugh. I mean, he taught me so much stuff, things about life. And I don't know, I just, my sister and I became very, very attached to him and we were very close. So the the diagnosis was very tough and the loss was even tougher he got very sick and at the end he really didn't want us to see him and he elected not to do any type of therapy and treatment. And so it was rough and he didn't want us to see him at the end. So that made it even tougher. When I was younger, I was really upset about it. Like I didn't understand 
why didn't he want to see us? Like I wanted to see him and I had to see him. And so it was really difficult. But growing up, I, I understand he wanted to be alone. He didn't want us to see him. He probably felt vulnerable. I don't know. And it was a sad time. I know when he, when he died, my mother, you know, had a hard time with it and we all tried to help. I don't know. I just lost is really difficult. And I think that if I had had the program back then, it wasn't in Al-Anon yet. I'm sure it would have helped me a lot because now dealing with it and realizing the tools that I have, I'm not so hard on myself and I'm not trying to change what God already planned to happen. I guess I just focus on being grateful and, and remembering the good times. And I don't know, I think the program definitely would have helped me because I did have a hard time with the grieving process and not knowing what to do for my mom and not understanding why it seemed like other people were moving on quicker than I was. And I was holding on to things and it was just really, really difficult. I, I'm grateful that I had the family that I had around me and the love and, and all that. But as far as other kinds of loss, when one of my qualifiers, when he would relapse and go out and be using that was tough. That was a loss. I know for at one point it was a four month thing and I just basically gave up. And at that time I was in the program and I did have Al-Anon and it did help. I wouldn't say it was easy. I was really upset and emotional and crying and thinking I should try more, but you know, I had people to lean on and people to talk to. I wasn't a hundred percent all the time, but at least I knew that I had a place to go and meetings helped and talking to my sponsor and just having friends in Alaron. Um, I definitely think I can compare the two differences and realize that I feel like even though the first one was a physical death and it was hard on me, the second one was like emotionally, like just so devastating because you feel like you're helpless. Even though it was four months, I really, really didn't think that there would be a turnaround or that I would be where I am today. I, it really felt like I was making myself sick and the program did help me. So I appreciate the topic and I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy. Thanks. I'm calling in about episode 77 on why I came to Al-Anon and why I stay. Recently, I was talking to someone about coming into the program. And I guess for me, even though my biological dad was an alcoholic growing up, and I would say my mom, I guess I would define her as an alcoholic too. She was obviously different than my father. My dad was to the point where he would drink until he was violent and passing out and just angry, um, an angry alcoholic. Whereas my mom, she didn't drink until after I would say she drank with him, but it was like social drinking. But then when they divorced, I remember growing up and having to be to school the next day and she'd be hung over and my memory's kind of foggy, but I do remember it happening quite a bit. I can't really pinpoint, you know, an amount on my hand, but. I just remember it happening. And then as an adult, I remember it happening 
even more. Just her wanting to go out and she always had a lot of friends and she liked to have fun. The only thing that bothered me was she would get behind the wheel and not remember how she got home and stuff like that. Even though I went through that at a younger age and then also coming to realize not until after I was in Al-Anon that I ended up marrying an alcoholic as well. But I didn't know at the time because we were in college and we were going out and it was mostly social drinking at the time. And then it progressively just got worse. And even though he functions, he doesn't go to work. He can maintain and he can control it in some way that my dad couldn't for some reason. But he does admit that he, you know, is an alcoholic. So after all these incidences happened to me, what actually brought me into the Al-Anon rooms was my best friend. He's one of my qualifiers. I guess growing up, I didn't really care for people that drank or did drugs. Like I was really against it. Even growing up, I turned down hard alcohol in high school when kids would experiment. I never did a drug. And I don't know if it was just because I didn't like what I would see with my parents. When I met my husband at the time we were dating, I did social drink, but I never... I never got drunk. It was just like, I didn't like that feeling. Like once I got to that certain feeling, I would stop. So I was really against people that were definitely doing drugs or any of that. So it's a surprise that my best friend ends up being a drug addict. And I didn't know it for a while because I'd never experienced that. But I just didn't understand why he seemed like something was off sometimes. And then I wouldn't hear from him for a while or he'd have weird text messages he'd send me. And I just didn't get, I was like, God, there's something going on. Is it me? Like, I would think it was me. Finally, when it came to the surface and he admitted his addictions and stuff, he downplayed it a little bit as far as the drugs he was using. And then it became apparent that it was serious. I guess when he ended up cutting ties with me and saying, you're better off without me, this and that. And I think he just wanted to not have to explain himself to me, maybe is what I'm thinking now. I can't really say, but he ended up, I didn't talk to him for like four months. And at that point I was, when it first happened, I was devastated. I had never felt such heartbreak, such pain. He said some cruel things to me and I didn't understand where it was coming from. I blame myself. And I wanted to save him. Like, that was my goal. Like, I felt like, okay, I failed it with my dad. I have a okay relationship with my mom. My dad ended up passing away from alcoholism. And I just felt like I wanted to save him. He was such a nice person and I wanted to do the right thing. And I remember his mother, she was at her wit's end too. And she was enabling a lot, which I didn't know at the time. That's what it was. I just thought, We're doing what we can to help him and save him and make sure he doesn't get hurt. You know, try to, if we, if we do this, then he won't have the desire to go use. And if we do that, he won't have to go steal or lie or whatever he was doing. If he had a good time, if we did fun things, his life would be fulfilled. And, you know, I was thinking all these things and it was just crushed. It was like gone. I remember his mom recommended going to Al-Anon because one of the police officers that she had encountered during one of his relapses had suggested it and she had never thought about going and she said she felt bad for me you could tell and she just says we need to go and I said okay I basically was going to support her I had no idea what the program was about 
I didn't even know what we would talk about. I just thought we it was going to be a sad place. I remember it was a Saturday meeting. It was kind of a medium-sized meeting. I didn't talk for the first three meetings. They were on Saturdays, and I didn't talk for those three meetings, but I cried a lot, and nobody judged. Nobody was making me feel bad or making me feel embarrassed. They just were very welcoming, though. And they gave me a phone list and a meeting list and they reached out and said they were at the end of the meeting. Every time they said they're there for us. I continue to go after the first three meetings, but his mom didn't go. I don't, I guess it just wasn't for her, but I continue to go. And as I continued to go, I felt better. Um, I was moving on. I was making friends. The hurt was still there, but I felt like I had something to help me get through it. I feel like that's why I went and I continue to stay just because I know that without it, I can get crazy. I can start thinking and going through scenarios in my head and thinking that it's me. And I just, you know, have learned so much in the program. So I'm just grateful for the steps and my sponsor and the friends that I've made. So anyways, that's all I have for today. Thank you. Deborah writes. Hi, Spencer. I hope you and your family are all safe and well. I've been listening and re-listening to several of your recent episodes. So many words of wisdom, hope, and recovery. Such a blessing in these difficult times. I gleaned so much from the episode you and Eric did on hope that I have been using many of the comments and quotes as topics for my Zoom meetings, just to name a few that resonated with me and subsequently with other meeting participants. Dear Deborah, thanks, but I don't need your help today. Thank you, God. And she writes, I don't have any tattoos. I may have to have that one. The three P's, pause, pray, proceed. My new mantra. Givers have to set boundaries because takers have none. Amen. The episode with Julie, number 331, is excellent. I so relate to Julie. To replace fear with love is a wonderful concept. I have also heard in meetings that the opposite of fear is love. I strive to live in love versus wallowing in fear and despair. I love her replacement of the word triggered with activated. Like you said, triggered feels like I'm jumping off a cliff. When I'm activated, I have time to make a choice. I can pause, pray, then proceed. I can now consider fear as my friend. When I feel fear, it is my signal that I am about to go down the dark path of negative projection, bad decisions, possibly attempting to control others, feel sickened by anxiety, not where I want to go. So I say a silent thank you to my fear and remind myself of where I am in this moment, and shift my thoughts to gratitude and love. Thank you to both you and Julie for a powerful podcast. Last but not least, your sober speak on steps one, two, and three was great. As I often need to rework the first three steps, I will be replaying this one often. Thank you for all of your service, Deborah C. Well, thank you, Deborah, and thank you for your service to this podcast. Nikki writes, I don't do New Year's resolutions. In the past, I would try something new, like jogging, and I would do it for two to three weeks. I would hate it that whole time, yet finally start noticing progress. I'd notice that breathing was getting easier. My form was less like a flailing fish out of water. The moment I would notice this progress, I would stop jogging, or whatever it was that I'd said I'd do as my New Year's resolution. I would just give up. 
I think that deep down I believed I wasn't deserving of good things, that I was just disgusting and a disappointment like my parents always told me and still do. 2020 was different. It was actually December 31st, 2019. I have no idea why, but I purchased the Kindle version of The Artist's Way by Julie Cameron. I began the first week's lesson there on the very last day of the year of 2019. I continued for the full 12 weeks. In that 12 weeks, I learned a little bit about loving myself. I also learned a lot about how I needed to get my trauma out of me. Every single day, I would write about my childhood with my two alcoholic parents, my narcotics addict sister, about all the abuse and neglect I experienced as a child that turned me into the codependent that I am, my eating disorders, my severe depression and anxiety. I finished my book, although I feel the ending isn't resolved, and that's because it really isn't. I finished writing based on my outline, but my story hasn't come to a close. One month ago, I decided to go back to therapy. During our first meeting, my therapist suggested that I look into Al-Anon. I had never heard of it. Two weeks ago, I discovered your podcast, The Recovery Show. I've listened to so many episodes now that I cannot place which episode it was. But Spencer had mentioned in one that when he first started going to meetings, all he could do was cry. I've not been to an actual meeting yet. All I've been doing is reading literature, from survival to recovery, growing up in an alcoholic home, how Al-Anon works, etc., and listening to this podcast. But I can relate. I listen and I read, and all I can do is cry. I feel like I've been doing this alone for so long. I turn 32 next month in July. I have been completely alone. This is significant because, for the first time in my entire life, I don't feel alone anymore. I don't know what that means. I currently feel a lot of confusing things, and I think I'm overwhelmed. I just thought it was important that I tell you thank you for doing this podcast. I just can't stop listening. Thank you, Nikki. I, I will say that right now, I feel a lot of confusing things and, and sometimes feel overwhelmed. There's just so much happening in the world that is not usual that it can be extremely overwhelming. Yesterday, I attended a webinar that was put on by my work about finding resiliency in troubling times. And they started out by talking about the events in the world that are causing trauma for many of us, and then about some tools that we can use, such as meditation or finding quiet space, getting enough sleep, paying attention to our body and taking care of it, putting the news on a diet, which I've been doing for a while now. I need to know what's going on, but I don't need to wallow in it. All sorts of, of tools that maybe I learned here, but it was good to hear them in a different context and be reminded at least. And there was more I'm just not remembering right now. So yeah, it's overwhelming. And taking a time to pause, pray and proceed, as a previous writer said, can be very helpful. We heard from Mary. My loved one lives 5,000 miles away in another country and has been actively drinking. She's my daughter. She is married with two beautiful boys. I've been learning how to speak with her and support her by sharing my experience, strength, and hope. She recently asked me to send her AA literature. She lives on a very remote island, and her counselor told her that there are no recovery groups on the island. She doesn't have internet at home, as she lives in the country, out in the boondocks. What AA literature could I send her? Should I even send her some AA literature? I know I cannot rescue her, and I know she has to find her own way. What can I do? I know there are online meetings. Do I just let her figure it out? 
I'm wanting to know how I can help her with this next step. My heart breaks for her as I am really coming to understand this horrible disease. I told her that I'm pretty sure she doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I think I will get drunk today. I'm really working on my codependency issues and working the 12 steps in Al-Anon to grow and be the best version of myself. I'm on step four with a sponsor whom I regard highly. I really appreciate your input. When your wife decided to get sober, how did you support her? I know her situation seems like there's no way to do this, but with God, all things are possible. I know he can make a way. Thank you, Spencer, from the bottom of my heart for your service. God bless you and all you do. Sincerely, Mary. Well, I'm not an expert on AA literature. Definitely the big book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, is the core literature for, for Alcoholics Anonymous. They have a daily reader, and I don't remember the title of it. I think if you go to the Alcoholics Anonymous website and go look at their store or literature, whatever the link is there for that, you'll find it. That also might be helpful. If she becomes interested in going to meetings, even if she doesn't have internet, uh, there, I know that almost all the Zoom meetings, for example, you can call in by phone. So if she has phone service, that might work for her. Uh, maybe she could get some help from her counselor for that. I think that because she asked for you to send books, that it's not being codependent and enabling to do so. My personal opinion. And I hope she finds her way to recovery. How did I support my wife? Well, by doing the things she asked me to, she asked me to help her get rid of the alcohol in the house. And so I did that. And by not doing the things that she didn't ask me to, I'm sure I spent some time monitoring how many meetings she went to and so on, but I also feel like I tried not to make that evident to her, not say, well, aren't you supposed to be going to a meeting today kind of thing? Being there and loving her and and doing what she asked and nothing more than that, I think is is pretty much what I did. It's been a while. Andy says, Hi, Spencer. I'm trying to educate myself as I am new to recovery and needing support during this crazy time. I'd really love to hear an episode with co-hosts, particularly with folks of color, to learn about how recovery can intersect with activism. I'm feeling incredibly anxious and triggered, given current affairs. As I'm learning about recovery, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between the family disease of alcoholism and problematic things in our society. In this case, I feel like my relationship with alcoholism is the same as my feelings toward the chaos of racism and police brutality. I'm thinking about this in response to the police murdering another black person in the U.S. The Black Lives Matter movement is front and center right now. I honestly feel similar to the way I feel when I'm wrapped up in my family members drinking. It's like the disease of alcoholism has put us in a very unsafe situation. I feel like this is not okay. I feel like I need to help, rescue, and speak up. I can't accept it. It's been a gut-wrenching experience for me personally, and I'm interested in how recovery can offer some wisdom during this dysfunctional time. I'm especially torn about the step one concept that I am powerless. I know from history that many things that we take for granted today, including the white women's right to vote and the Civil Rights Act, never would have happened without people trying to change things that was out of their control. 
Women didn't get the right to vote until women protested, and the civil rights movement is strikingly similar to the protests, riots, and violence going on now in 2020. I've heard how important it is to educate ourselves and get involved, especially if we come from a place of white privilege. I'm feeling confused because I know that to be on the right side of history, I want to have the courage to change the things I can, but I don't know how. I really appreciate the section in your podcast, Spencer, where you talk about your life and recovery and how these principles can work in all our affairs on a daily basis. So how can recovery, the serenity prayer, and the traditions of Al-Anon guide us during these times? I would love an episode dedicated to this. I know Al-Anon does not get involved with outside issues, especially about politics or movements in particular. But to me, this idea is like previous concepts of how Al-Anon helps us in the workplace during the coronavirus and how it works in all our affairs. How does Al-Anon work in activism? How does Al-Anon work in a dysfunctional society? Thank you for hearing me, and I would really love to hear thoughts on this, especially from people of color. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for writing, Andy. And you're right. I try not to get into politics here or in my meetings, but it is very clear that that something is going on that many feel is, how to put it? Well, so activism. I was taking a walk the other day, as I've been doing during this time of staying at home, working from home. I don't walk to work anymore, so I try to take a long walk in the morning before I sit down to work, because I'm sitting a lot. Anyway, I'm walking along the sidewalk, and people have been drawing pictures, writing things on sidewalks. Sometimes they say, happy birthday. This one said, and it is a quote, and I'm not getting it exactly right. I no longer accept the things I cannot change. I work to change the things I cannot accept. It's a quote from Angela Davis, who was an activist in the 60s and is still an activist. And how does that relate to the serenity prayer? I think it relates exactly to the serenity prayer. Because the serenity prayer challenges us to know the difference between the things we cannot change and the things we can. And to be honest with ourselves and to understand where we can have an effect on things that it seems that we have no power over. And then to to get out there and do what we can. And it may seem like a single person really can't do anything about problems of society. And and I think in general, that is true. But, you know, if you and you and you and I and you all get together, we can start to make changes. And we've seen that happen so many times. I've seen that happen so many times in the 60 plus years I've been on this earth. I've also seen myself become complacent and overconfident that the work is done. Which, to me, relates exactly to the denial that I felt living with alcoholism. Well, it's not that bad, you know. It's okay, I can live with this, when I really couldn't. So how does powerlessness and acceptance relate to activism? I believe that as I've said many times about step one, about accepting my powerlessness, about understanding and, and admitting my powerlessness, is that 
when I understand, when I really understand the things that I don't have power over, it frees me to change the things that I do have some power, some influence to change. Yeah. So those are my thoughts at the moment. If you have ideas, thoughts, experience, strength, hope about how you can use your recovery program to support whatever activism, whatever societal change you would like to work for, please write, call, and let's talk about it. Carol left us a share. I think Carol is responding to the question about how do we stay focused on recovery and meetings? She titled her share meetings as medicine. Hello, Spencer. This is Carol from Massachusetts in response to episode 333, the question of what do I do in a meeting that feels like a lot of maybe complaining or feels less hopeful or maybe not hopeful at all. Yeah, those are some tough meetings. And here's what I've been working with, some days better than others. One is to remember my consent that I'm giving. To sit in a meeting is to sit with my disease. My disease will be mirrored to me through my own feelings and through my reaction to others. Now, this is tough medicine, and I've had to really look at meetings as being medicine as opposed to a solution. And sometimes medicine makes me feel worse when I take medicine before I feel better. And the other thing is if I'm feeling worse after a meeting, I try to remember that I can go back to step one and feel powerless. And it's okay to feel powerless and not have a resolution for the powerlessness and take care of myself, do some self-care, you know, be whatever I might need, something probably gentle or nurturing for myself, maybe read or be outside if I can. Yeah, and give myself credit for doing the hard work. Recovery is hard, and it's messy, but it delivers. So thank you for your service, and yeah, thanks for being there, everyone. Thank you, Carol. We heard from the person who originally wrote about negativity in meanings. They labeled it as an update. I spoke with my sponsor about the issue I mentioned in my previous email, and she pointed out that maybe I'm uncomfortable withholding space for others' feelings. I think this could be true. She said, it is very Al-Anon of me to be so uncomfortable with others expressing their deep emotions. I know I can definitely struggle with this and still have trouble myself sharing at meetings. Perhaps there's something there. I don't totally renounce my previous email, but I always appreciate different perspectives and she does know me really well. My sponsor said, I need to show up to each meeting exactly as I am, even after decades of recovery. If I had first gone to al meetings and everyone was happy, I would have thought, these people do not have my problems and never gone back. I'm going 
to work on holding space for others' deep emotions, even if they are sad. I really appreciated her words and always appreciate others' opinions and shares, just maybe not if they cry too much. Several people wrote about the question of putting a time limit on shares in the podcast. Here's a short one. Hi, I love your podcast. Don't put a time for the shares. I look forward to them. Sharon writes, Hi, Spencer. You asked for feedback about putting time limits on listeners' shares, so here goes. What I love about your podcast, and podcasts in general, is that topics are discussed in a deeper and sometimes analytical way. It is my belief that the culture of podcast listeners is accustomed to really unpacking a subject, idea, feeling, etc. So please do not put time limits on shares and continue to give us content that goes deep and connects to us in meaningful ways. Thanks for your service. Sharon C. Pat left a voicemail on this. Hey, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. Regarding time limits on shares for the recovery show, I am thinking that maybe something that could be done is if you think a share is kind of a little bit too long, maybe if there's a natural break point where the person moves from one topic to another, maybe you could break them up and uh, sprinkle them out over a series of podcasts so it's not too long with any one person. I do tend to agree with you that you just never know when something that somebody says is going to speak to another person in a meeting. And um, I would hate to have that. If it were me in your place, I wouldn't want to put my filter on it because I know I have such a specific point of view of the world and wouldn't want to be interpreting for others what's useful and what's not useful. But uh, maybe just asking people to be mindful of the time they're using and then also, like I said, you could you could just break it up and sprinkle it through several podcasts if you think that would work for a particular share. Okay, that's my thought on that. Take care. And as always, thank you so much for the work you do. And thanks to Eric. He's really stepped up to the plate and shared on so many topics with you. I was just listening to the January 2019 in review for 2018 and you're really pleading for help there with your podcasts and getting them out and, and I'm glad he was able to help you with that so often. Okay. Love to you. Love to all the listeners and good health. This is Pat. Bye. Thanks, Pat. Toby writes, hi, Spencer. I'm responding to the question of whether to limit audio shares on the recovery show. Personally, I really like these shares and would be sad to have them reduced. Hearing multiple voices is one of the things I value most about meetings and about this podcast. Also, as I understand it, the purpose of limiting shares is to allow everyone or as many people as possible to share within the limited time of a meeting. Luckily, podcasts don't have a time limit. Also, Podcasts allow listeners to have a significant audio control, including skipping ahead to a later point in the episode. Just some thoughts to add to the conversation, Toby. Spencer, I recently heard a listener give feedback about proposing potential time limits for sharing for the voice recordings. I feel very strongly about not imposing time limits. Meetings are strict and have consistent rules and guidelines that we have to follow and that keep the meeting safe and structured, and I understand why the rules are there. While your podcast is alive because of the program, it is not a meeting. This request personally feels like a principles before personalities issue. I hope you will continue the current format and structure of your podcast. Marcy. Gina writes, Hi, Spencer, and all who share on the recovery show. I wanted to comment on how someone requested a time cap for voice shares on the show. 
I do appreciate hearing different opinions, and that is a great reminder for my higher power that I don't know what is best. Though I disagree with this request, I love the format of people sharing as short or as long as they wish. By the way, I am someone who really appreciate meetings that are timed with a timekeeper when the amount of time to share is evenly divided by the number of people so that everyone has a fair chance to share. However, since this is a podcast with no time limit to ensure everyone is heard, for the time being, I appreciate hearing the range of shares people call in with. I can always take what I like and leave the rest. If I need to, there is the option to pause, fast forward, or rewind to listen again. I personally love the format. There was a powerful and helpful share from Jess in California in the dual program members number 326, which has stuck with me since I heard it. I remember thinking that her share was longer than others, and I was so grateful for everything she said, and have since re-listened to it a few times. I really appreciated what she said about how processing grief is so important for those who grew up in alcoholic homes. It has inspired me to process more about my inner child, which I am learning is really my authentic self when I pull back the layers of rescuing, enabling, people-pleasing, and the distraction of busyness so that I can actually focus on myself and truly feel my feelings. She also talked honestly about how sometimes there's an attitude in Al-Anon that ACA is ridiculed. I resonated with that and felt her honesty was admirable because although I started in Al-Anon, I really feel that ACA and CODA have offered me even deeper rich recovery, and I've noticed and felt saddened by those attitudes of other 12-step programs seeming less than as well. It wasn't until I heard her share that I was able to put the words what I was noticing and feeling, so I was glad this woman explained it so well in her voicemail to the show. Anyway, there was a lot in her share that spoke to me, and I recognized that if her share had had a time limit, I wouldn't have been able to get so much identification, experience, strength, and hope from it. Thanks again, Jess, for sharing. I also wanted to say that I've been grateful to all the people that have volunteered to co-host meetings. It is great to have a mix of experiences and hear from so many women. The boundary episode has made me think a lot about the difference between external boundaries and internal boundaries. In terms of external boundaries, I can notice when other people, places, and things trigger me, so I have to make a choice about how I will respond in order to protect my external boundary. I have no control over what other people do, and I can't really expect them to change or follow my boundaries, but I can establish what I will do if I feel confronted with an external boundary. I can say something calming, state my feelings, leave the room, make a choice to set a time limit on our next visit, etc. From internal boundaries, I think of these as internal limits, which I try to set on myself to keep perspective on my distorted, stinking thinking. I can keep internal boundaries on myself to prioritize serenity in my life. This sometimes looks like making sure I don't stay up too late, or, during COVID time, not overdoing it on the news or fear-mongering health. Internal boundaries and limits also come in terms of my own urges to be a helper, fixer, or those murky moments between enabling and empowering. I need to take a look at my own internal limits there to make sure I take care of myself before helping others. If I have clear self-care boundaries and bottom lines for myself, I can be aware of when I start slipping away from those markers. Once I have that awareness and acceptance, I can take action by choosing to make a different choice or break patterns of behavior that would distance me from my higher power and take me farther away from inner peace. Thanks for your patience with my long emails. Take care, and thank you for your shares, everyone. Gina. Oh, so much in there. And long, yeah. I got some letters of thanks. Julie, who was on episode 331, writes in response to 
A listener who said thank you to her, which I forwarded to Julie, she writes back and says, Thank you for forwarding this to me, and a huge thank you for having me on the show. I was nervous, and you made me feel at ease with your gentle and funny manners. You also did a wonderful job of guiding our discussion in ways that allowed me to see the paths I took on my recovery journey. I didn't realize I'd be talking about the steps in such detail that day, but I feel that was my higher power's will for me. It was your gift that allowed it to happen. Also, I feel like I got a glimpse of how much work goes into producing an episode, and I'm all the more grateful for you and the show. I mean, geez, the couple hours for the conversation, the script you put together, all the editing you must do afterward, reading and listening to all the feedbacks. When I listen to an episode, it just sounds like you're having a friendly conversation with a guest or yourself. So a huge thank you for making a difference in my life. Your podcast is an integral part of my recovery. I've listened to every episode twice now, and I'm going around for the third time. Every time I listen to an episode, I get even more out of it than the times before. Please do something kind for yourself today, Julie. I just... (laughs) Wow. I mean, I'm doing something kind for myself. I'm reading this letter again. All those things that you said... I want to thank you for reflecting on how I made this an easy and joyful experience for you to do. You know, that is a goal that I have, but I don't always know that I'm succeeding at it. And so hearing something like back from you is is just wonderful and supportive and helps to inspire me to keep on going. Nicola writes, I started searching for something to fill the void of hope I gained from Al-Anon meetings. Recently, things at home started to spiral back to some painful old habits, and my old reactions and obsessions came straight back, too. I found myself forgetting all I had learned in Al-Anon. I only attended a handful of meetings through February and March, but they had a huge impact, and I felt I could cope, while also learned to be my best self. I found strength I didn't know I had, and an awareness I have the biggest part to play in my own happiness, regardless of my husband's choice to drink or not. Your show continues to give me so much comfort and hope during this difficult time, and I just had to share, thank you, thank you, Nicola. Martha writes, Hello, Spencer. Thank you over and over for your podcasts. Today, I listened to episode 330 about boundaries, and it is perfect for me now, living with a secret alcoholic. The world thinks he is a non-drinker, but I am well aware he drinks. He's been a regular participant of AA in the past, has been to outpatient rehab, counseling, etc. I know he's deeply rooted in shame. I'm working hard on boundaries. I'm at a point where more boundaries are needed. Anyway, you read from a reader, and I think you said the date of the first reading was November 6th, but my courage to change November 6th is different. Could you share that reading again? Also, I do have the Blue How Al-Anon Works book and will reread the chapter you read from in the podcast. Many, many thanks. I know you're making a difference to many. Martha. And actually, Martha, that reading was from the book Hope for Today, November 6th. You know, you can order Hope for Today online from Al-Anon. And Al-Anon definitely can use the financial support. It's also available electronically in, I think, all the different formats. I have a, a paper copy that I bought at a meeting years ago. I also have a Kindle copy now that I bought from Amazon because... That's where I read my electronic literature mostly. So maybe you can find that one and it will help you too. The music that I picked to go here 
is from Best Coast. The title is Everything Has Changed. This is a song about recovery. It's a song written by a singer who had trouble with alcohol and is now sober. But I think the message of being able to recover from whatever it is that is driving our lives in directions we don't like is here. Some lyrics. I used to drink nothing but water and whiskey. Now I think those were the reasons why I used to fall deep down in a hole. I used to crawl all the way back home. I used to cry myself to sleep reading all the names they called me. Everything has changed. I like it this way. Everything has changed. I'd like for it to stay. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? It's been, I think, actually a couple of weeks since I last talked to you. Life seems so much the same. In these days, I'm continuing to work on taking care of myself. We're starting to see some opening back up in the area where I live can hear a train in the background there, probably. About a half a mile from the railroad tracks where there's a level crossing, and the train blows at every level crossing, blows its horn to warn people to uh, stop, to not drive across the tracks, that sort of thing. And I have come in the three decades of living here to really appreciate that sound. It often comes in the middle of the night, and if I I'm awake and hearing it. It's, I don't know what, you know, it, it, not exactly comforting, but in a way it is. Anyway, way off topic, but, you know, recognizing what's going on around is important. I've been attending some new meetings. A friend of mine, Eric, in fact, told me about a meeting that happens at 7.30 Eastern time every day where they read all three daily readers at the beginning of the meeting. And I thought, well, that sounds like a neat thing. And I'm up at 7.30. When I have time, I can just call in and be there. You know, it is so nice. And so I've called in a couple times already. Both times I was out walking. And I can be in a meeting and walking. And the first one that I attended, one of the readings talked about being in the moment about noticing what's going on right now, not obsessing on the past and the future. It actually talked about detaching from the past and the future. And I had never thought about detachment as something that, you know, I can detach from the past, I can detach from the future, and I can be in the moment. It was reading from Hope for Today, June 6th, about detachment. The writer speaks about detaching However, I wasn't so adept at detaching from myself. During a maddening bout of reacting to my own emotions, my sponsor suggested I bring my mind where my body was by doing something physical and repeating to myself whatever I was doing. I was looking for something more profound, and I dismissed her idea for eight years until I was tired of repeating the same behavior. I tried her suggestion, and it worked. So, it's not just 
the idea of detaching from the stuff around, detaching from the past and the and the future, which is the way I heard it, but it's also giving a positive action to replace that obsession with a focusing on the present, a focusing, in fact, on the body. What is the body doing right now? So I'm listening to this share, and I'm walking along a street in town, and a, and a very large bird flies overhead and lands in a tree near me, and I look up, and it's a vulture. You know, I see vultures occasionally, but this is the first time that I can recall seeing one in the city, and it flew and, and perched on a on a chimney across the road. If I hadn't been present with myself, if I hadn't been there in the moment, I might have missed that. And it was really a magnificent sight when it's flying with its wings outstretched. It's, I think it, they might have like a six-foot wingspan or something crazy like that. It's just a, an amazing sight. I would have missed, you know? And being able to listen to the meeting while I walked both enhanced the walk and I think enhanced the meeting um, and helped me to stay focused on the meeting because I don't know about you, but when I'm in electronic meetings, I'm on my computer and it is so tempting to, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just look up something on, on, on the internet right now. I'll just look up, there's this thing I've been wanting to get. Maybe I'll go look for it in Amazon and see and see what the options are and what it costs. And, and it is so easy for me to distract myself. That little squirrel in my mind wants to go somewhere. And so walking, being on my phone and walking while I'm in the meeting removes that distraction and helps me to stay focused on the meeting. Just like the reading said, basically, you know, remove the distraction, focus on where you are right now. So that was really helpful. And it was a, it was a great experience. It's been really nice weather recently which doesn't hurt. Yesterday we had an amazing thunderstorm that didn't break any trees in my yard at least. It did take out power for a number of people around the city. They were forecasting wind gusts up to 70 miles per hour. I don't think we got that right where I was, but it it was dramatic. And of course our daughter was coming over for dinner and she arrived while it was pouring down rain. And then my wife got home while it was pouring down rain. <laughs> you just, you know, you got to take sometimes what life gives you. And we were fine and we had a great dinner. We've sort of merged our bubble with our daughter's bubble, which is very nice after months of being pretty much separate and doing Zoom meetings, which is not the same. So that's a little bit about what's going on what's happened in my life in recovery in the last week or so. I don't have a topic planned for the next episode. I've been thinking about grief, uh, that wonderful suggestion from a listener about how do we connect or reconcile or use recovery in working for social change and working in activism. How do those two work together? How do they maybe conflict? Love to hear your thoughts on that. That could be a topic. If you want to participate as a guest host, send me a voicemail or an email. And I know a lot of you have done that. And I've responded to some of you with some information about how to do that. And others, I haven't. And I apologize for that. I'm not the best at follow through. You may have noticed that over the years of listening. So 
poke me again, and I will send you a link where you can sign up to record an episode with me. Be much appreciated. You can call and leave a voicemail if you have experience, strength, and hope to share. If you have questions or your own thoughts about some of the things that were shared in the many voices today, you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation directly from your computer. You can record a share with a voice memo app on your phone and email it to feedback at therecovery.show. Or, of course, you can send email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. And the dog has joined me. You may have heard him yawning and whining in the background. Our website is therecovery.show. You can find all the information about the show there, including notes for each episode, links to the readings, etc., videos for the music. If you would like to see the show notes for this show, that would be at therecovery.show slash 334. I've also put together an email list. I'm sending out an email with topic ideas and usually some sort of a share, maybe once every two weeks. Um, And I still have this thought that it would be an idea to do a Zoom gathering of recovery show listeners. And if I get that together in my head, announcement of that will also be sent to this email list. So if you'd like to be on the list, send an email to feedback at therecovery.show. It helps me if you put something about email list in the subject line, because if you kind of put that in the middle of a longer share, I might miss it. Just that's me, knowing myself, character defects and all. So again, if you're interested in being on the email list, send an email and I will add you. And I've got one other song that I wanted to share before closing. The song is The Middle. It's by Jimmy Eat World, although the one I want to share is a cover by Carolyn Spence. It's an acoustic cover. And some of the lyrics that really speak to me here from the middle of the song, the middle of the song, called The Middle. Hey, you know they're all the same. You know you're doing better on your own, so don't buy in. Live right now, just be yourself. It doesn't matter if it's good enough for someone else. It just takes time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. And although I think this was originally a coming-of-age song, it works for me as a recovery song also. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.